It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The bustling campus of California Polytechnic State University, Cal Poly, was unusually empty Memorial Day weekend, 1996. Although many students went away for the holiday, a few stayed on campus to enjoy some college fun. 19-year-old Kristen Smart was a freshman at Cal Poly, living at the Muir Hall dormitory. On Friday, May 24th, she and a group of other girls who had stayed for the weekend gathered together for a night out at a local house party. The party seemed relatively over, and while her friends were ready to go home, Kristen stayed out, eager to find another fun event to continue the night. She entered a party at 135 Crandall Way, an unofficial fraternity house located close to the campus. Although Kristen didn't know anyone there, her beauty and bubbly nature helped her to stand out. Many partygoers noted that Kristen appeared sober that night, but at two o'clock in the morning, two students found Kristen passed out on a neighboring lawn. They helped her up and began walking her back home. Another student, Paul Flores, joined the group to help and volunteered to take her home. The students watched them walk away, and Flores would be the last person to ever see Kristen. She never made it home. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. For years, the mystery behind Kristen Smart's disappearance plagued the San Luis Obispo campus and community. Kristen's friends grew concerned when she still did not arrive home at her dorm the following day. They contacted the Cal Poly Police Department on May 25th. However, police would not begin their investigation until four days after her disappearance. Authorities began questioning Flores as a person of interest, yet they did not search his dorm until June 5th, when the academic year was over and he had already moved out. Flores denied any involvement with Kristen's disappearance and even refused to answer any questions during a November deposition in 1997. Days became weeks, weeks became months, and still, there was no sign of Kristen. On May 25th, 2002, Six years after her disappearance, Kristen Smart was declared legally dead. For the next two decades, investigators remained on the case, meaning it was never deemed cold. New evidence was found. 91 interviews were conducted. Cadaver dogs were employed. Podcaster Chris Lambert even released a series about her disappearance titled Your Own Backyard, which helped garner attention to her memory and the case. Eventually, Paul Flores' status escalated from person of interest to prime suspect. On April 13, 2021, Paul and his father, Ruben, were arrested in connection with Kristen's disappearance. Paul, who was now 45, was charged with first-degree murder. 
on October 18, 2022, 26 years after Kristen's disappearance, Paul Flores was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. His father, Reuben, was acquitted of being an accessory to murder. Retired San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Detective Clint Cole became the lead detective on Kristen's case in 2019 and helped bring justice to her murder. Today, he joins me with a look back at how he was able to bring justice to the longtime mystery. This case uh, was 26 years old when I inherited it. Um, I, I was assigned the case by the sheriff in September of 2017. And the reason I was assigned the case is uh, I was assigned as a cold case unsolved homicide detective at the time, working on the department's other unsolved homicides. And the guy who was working the Kristen Smart case promoted. And so they needed somebody to be the sheriff always wanted someone full time on this case. So he gave the case to me. So how long then had it been designated technically cold? How long had the sheriff had a full-time sheriff's detective on this cold case? I got assigned as a cold case investigator in January of 2017. This case is unique. It was never deemed cold. There was always um, an active investigation, always a detective assigned to this case, once uh, Sheriff Parkinson was elected in 2011, that was a goal of his. And so once that, uh, in, from 2011 on, it always had uh, an active investigation. I see. And so when you inherited it, what had been accomplished in, in your eyes from 2011 to 2017? Not a whole lot of things to move the case forward, in my opinion. Um, and when I talk about this case, I want it known that I'm not, you know, putting down anyone who had the case before me. Um, it's a difficult, it was extremely difficult case. It got off to a rough start and it didn't have a lot of investigative leads for a long time. And it really didn't have a lot of stuff that, progressed it. There were some things done. Uh, one of the investigators prior to me did a forensic dig on the hillside behind Cal Poly, believing there was a chance that maybe Paul and Kristen ended up up there. Um, and that was obvious uh, negative results. But prior to that, not, not a lot. There was a lot of investigation. As I said, it was always active, but nothing that really seemed to move the case forward. And so what changed when you then inherited the case in 2017? A lot moved forward. Can you share with us about your investigation? It's a very huge case as far as uh, reports, uh, witness. There's over 200 witnesses in the case now. Uh, when I took it over, there was probably half that. One of my goals when I reviewed the case, and it took about eight months to a year to really know the case the way I should know it because it is such a huge case. And um, I mean, there were multiple investigations it started with Cal Poly police, uh, the university police it went to the DA's office briefly. It went to 
our agency, the FBI was also involved. And so one of my goals was with all these witnesses, a lot of them were interviewed multiple times. People that saw Kristen at the party and Paul at the party to the point where some got attorneys because they felt like they were being harassed. Some felt like they were being deemed as persons of interest. And I wanted to kind of, I mean, there's, when I reviewed the case, all their stories were the same as far as from their very first interview to their last interview, their stories never wavered. And so I tried to not go back and re-interview these people that I felt didn't need to. I tried to move forward from what had been done regarding the initial interviews. And uh, one of the things that I, I felt when I reviewed the case is that Paul needed help to do this. Kristen was a very tall, about six one, six foot six one lady. Paul was about five ten. Now Paul was a strong guy, you know, and he was only nineteen, so he was definitely stronger than he is now. But I felt he needed help. The case file showed that his sister and her soon-to-be husband lived 1.1 miles away from Paul's storm in San Luis Obispo, but they lived very close to Paul. Paul had been to their house um, via foot multiple times prior to this night. That's where he was actually headed before he found the party on Crandall Way. And using that theory, knowing that his, his sister had vehicles that Paul had borrowed before. His dad was in Arroyo Grande, which is only about 15 miles away. And knowing, reviewing some of the discrepancies in everybody's interviews on the side of the Flores family made me believe that this was most likely a situation where all or a lot of the family helped. There's just seems very difficult that Paul could get Kristen without a car from his dorm 15 to 20 miles away to where we believe she was placed without help. And so I went on that theory and started seeing if there was a way we could move forward. One of the things I wanted to do was do a wiretap. Um, a lot of investigation had been done on this case, um, including a previous wiretap in 1999. And so it's difficult when thing, a lot of things had been done, you need new information to get search warrants for wiretaps and, and search warrants for locations. And so I was starting to build on that. Can you share if there was anything that came of the 1999 wiretap, did it yield any results? Because, you know, we're aware of a standard of evidence required not only for an arrest, but for a prosecution. So was there, you know, it seems to me, or it's my understanding that there was always some evidence. The question was when it rose to the level of an arrest and then an actual prosecutable amount. Um, and so what came of that wiretap, if anything, the original one? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, nothing pertinent came of the wiretap um, other than it was very obvious, in my opinion, when you reviewed the wiretap notes and behaviors of the Flores family that they were hiding something. 
no conversations deemed anything positive towards the investigation. But anytime there was public information released in what is called stimulating the wire, trying to get them to talk, they would meet Susan Paul's mom and Reuben Paul's father lived very close together, no more than a couple miles. And when investigators were doing the wiretap, they would also surveil the two. And they became very suspicious of law enforcement actions. So if law enforcement released an article in the local news to try and stimulate conversation, they wouldn't talk on the phone. They would meet in person. Were there ever attempts at at surveillance of their in-person conversations? Were there ever um, attempts at getting surveillance warrants for the the physical meetings? uh, There wasn't. um, Keep in mind, in 99, the technology isn't what it is today. Mm. Um, Now we have listening devices that might have been able to get close enough to to listen. Um, In 99, nothing nothing came of it other than this suspicious behavior. Right. I mean, if you're not, if you're not involved or you're not, you don't have anything to hide, why are you meeting in person? Um, and during the phone calls, uh, Ruben would actually say they are probably recording us. So don't talk. So all of that stuff is very suspicious to me. 25, 24, 25 years later, when I inherited the case, you know, I just felt like, you know, I went into the case with an open up, open mind. I mean, the whole world, when I took the case, believed Paul Flores was involved. And, you know, and I certainly kept that in mind, but I also kept an open mind. It's just the right way to handle an investigation. It became obvious or very early on that my opinion, even to this day, his family was involved in the cover up um, of hiding Kristen Smart's body for 25, 26 years. They, they still do. I mean, we haven't brought her home, as you know. Mm. So they're still hiding her body. Yeah. So, all right. So now it's 2017 and you mentioned, so now you, you this is a second wiretap that you obtain or a second round. Um, tell us what happens next. Yeah. And so I, uh, the actual wiretap started in January of 20, 2020. Okay. And we knowing they uh, were suspicious of any public release of information through the media, we try not to do that. So how we started stimulating the wire was by actually going and re-interviewing family members in person. By now, Paul's sister, Irma Linda, and her husband at the time, Brett, had divorced. Brett lived in Oklahoma, so we went and met him personally. We went to Washington State and met with Irma Linda. Uh, Ruben and Susan would never meet with us, even though they claimed that we never asked. And so we did, we did some things that weren't as obvious because they were very, very suspicious of anything that we were doing. And we got them talking. So that's how we started stimulating the wire. Did the ex-husband, Brett, did he, um, did he continue to show allegiance and loyalty to that family or did he, was he more forthcoming with information for you when you interviewed him in Oklahoma? No, he totally showed allegiance to them, which I think is highly suspicious. You know, I'm not going to say that I think Brett was directly involved, but I do believe Brett has knowledge of things that were done in 1996. 
and that's based on my contacts with him. And he, uh, he had been interviewed previously in person by investigators and his own wife called him out for not being honest in that interview in 2013, he was interviewed and his own wife at the end of it said, you're not telling the truth about Paul. So I do believe that Brett has some knowledge and interestingly enough. So April 13th, 2021, right after Paul Flores was arrested, Brett hired a very influential, uh, very uh, well-known criminal attorney out of LA and fled the country to Singapore for a teaching job, which once again, I feel is uh, pretty suspicious. He never gave us any information, uh, believed Paul wasn't involved, even when we confronted him with some very obvious things showing Paul's involvement. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let's talk about that too. Um, You know, what were the obvious things? From what we know right now, there's sort of a mountain of evidence, but a lot of it has to do with his past behavior, um, past testimony, uh, including arrests. And that behavior of his sort of exhibited a pattern that ranged from, quote, creepy to downright illegal. And so there's sort of a, um, a a history and pattern of his behavior around women. And then there was also a lot of circumstantial evidence um, at the time. So at what point, you know, what what tipped the needle for you? This also coincided with a, a podcast at the time that gained popularity and also attention for this case. And... People, um, a lot of people came forward with information that hadn't been heard in the past. Was that relevant? Um, you know, what changed for you in addition to, as you said, so you're focusing on the family, but what other pieces of information came to light under your watch that enabled the arrest? The first thing, uh, as I said, I kept an open mind during the investigation, but once I watched uh, the interview that was done, um, June 19th of 1996 by investigators from the DA's office uh, of Paul Flores. It's blatantly obvious that he's hiding something in lying. He tells, he tells multiple lies about senseless things like a bruise on his eye, when he received it, how he received it. There's mul- there's at least four stories on how he received the bruise. His dad lies about it. There's no reason for somebody to lie over something simple like that. And so feeling comfortable that Paul was involved and his family most likely was involved. I continued down that road and in prior, just prior to the wiretap, I went to Oregon and was able to locate and take possession of a truck that belonged to Paul's sister and brother-in-law at the time Kristen went missing. And deposition statements showed that Paul had borrowed that truck in the past. And we know how close he used, uh, they lived to the dorm. And so we used that. Um, we searched it and we also used it as uh, stimulation. Uh, the podcast uh, started just prior to the wiretap. And I think the first episode was around October of 2019. And at first, we weren't sure 
you know, what, where uh, Chris Lambert was, what he felt about law enforcement. Um, Chris only knew what he knew from family, not from what we knew. And so when his first couple podcasts, that's what he was presenting. Some of it was factual. Some of it was not. Once we got to know Chris, we started sharing information and began to trust each other. And Chris gave this investigation a lot of valuable information and witnesses that helped us proceed with the case. Um, some of the information that um, people are sometimes reluctant to talk to law enforcement, because if you talk to us and we put it down on paper, you're going to probably end up in court testifying. And people know that. And that's intimidating and scares people. Chris, we can't keep people confidential, especially in a murder case. Chris can because he's not law enforcement. So people were more willing to talk to Chris. And then Chris would assist us in getting some of these very important people that Chris found to talk to us. Chris was an excellent um, researcher for a person who had no law enforcement skills. He, he was a very good interviewer and he knew how to get information from the people that he was talking to. And he shared a lot of valuable information that helped us get into Ruben Flores, Paul's father's house in Arroyo Grande, 710 White Court. It was always one of my goals. Everyone always focused on Susan's house, 529 Branch Street. I never thought she was there. The concrete was poured before Kristen went missing. And the public focus was on that house, which actually benefited us because it allowed them to feel comfortable about white court. So that was always my, my goal from the time I first started reviewing the case was to get into white court. But a search warrant had been done on white court in 1996 and nothing was found. It wasn't a very thorough search. And so once a search warrant's executed on a location, you have to find new information to get back into that location. And Chris, uh, Chris Lambert assisted us greatly in helping us get into white court. Can you share some of those then page turning pieces of information he was able to get for you and, and people? So what changed, what turned the tide for white court, for example, or who did he bring forth that changed the game for you? One of the people that Chris Lambert spoke to was a former renter who lived with Ruben Flores for about 10 years. And I was aware of the witness, but didn't feel like he would talk to me while he was still living with uh, Ruben Flores. So I waited on contacting him. Well, Chris got information from somebody else who followed his podcast that that person had actually moved out. And so Chris got the information first and was able to talk to this individual right after he moved out. I mean, probably a week, if not earlier, and got valuable information about Ruben not allowing anyone under his deck, including a plumber. So the back of the house, there's a deck, and underneath that deck is, a, is an area that's very large. In some locations, it's at least six feet tall, maybe taller. 
and it goes up towards the left of the residence if you're looking at it from the rear to several feet, you know, various uh, heights. And uh, this person was never allowed down underneath there in 10 years. He also heard Ruben making disparaging comments about Kristen Smart while he was talking to Paul Flores on the phone, calling her dirty names. He saw some suspicious activity with a Volkswagen vehicle, which belonged to Paul's sister in 1996, which Ruben still had hidden in his garage. People were offering to buy that car and Ruben would not sell it saying it's not for sale. Yet he, he didn't drive it. It hadn't been registered in multiple years. So this individual provided information about that car, which was another car at his sister's house the night Kristen went missing, that all of a sudden is in Ruben's garage 25 years later, and he's not driving it. It's just, it's got, you know, years of dust on it, and it's got stuff stored on top of it. Why is he keeping this car? Um, it was, it's a, it's a Volkswagen Cabriolet. In my opinion, it's not an antique. It's not a 57 Chevy. You know, why has he got this garage hidden in his car? So that was very beneficial. Um, we also were able to make contact from, uh, with Chris, Chris Lambert's help to speak to a former girlfriend of Paul Flores who had been at white court and she was not allowed to go in the backyard or near the olive trees which were directly behind the house where I believe Kristen Smart was initially buried underneath Ruben's deck. Chris gave us valuable other information that wasn't necessarily allowed in court regarding, as you mentioned earlier, other victims of Paul Flores. Um, Going back to when he was in high school, attempting to drug women, young ladies, um, sexually assault them, and... I spoke to probably six or eight ladies who had very bad, scary interactions with Paul Flores, which all came from Chris Lambert. And one of the biggest things Chris found was a lady who lived across the street from Ruben. We served our first search warrant for digital media based off of the wiretap on February 5th. 2020. Four days later, on February 9th, 2020, a neighbor who we eventually talked to through Chris Lambert saw Susan Flores, who is supposed to be divorced from Ruben and has a live-in boyfriend, Mike McConville. Those two live at Branch Street. They were all up at Ruben's house with a cargo trailer belonging to Mike McConville and Mike's travel trailer. And in the middle of the night, they pulled the cargo trailer down on the side of Ruben's house. And they were up all night fighting and arguing and they all stayed the night. So here's the ex-wife and her boyfriend all staying the night at Ruben's house, February 9th into February 10th, 2020. And that neighbor was able to take some, very important photographs of this action that I just described, including the cargo trailer being on the side of the house. Later, we found out when we went back to the residence 
there was a small fence where that trailer was. When we went back, they had removed that fence to get the trailer in there on that uh, right side. If you're looking at the residence to the right of the garage, they pulled that trailer down there, which isn't very far from where we believe Kristen Smart was buried for many years underneath Ruben's deck. Mm. That was some of the most important information that allowed us to get to white court that all came from Chris Lambert. Wow. And the, the sheriff's office released sort of a calculation and it included from the 2011 point uh, that you uh, mentioned earlier when the sheriff was elected and then it went through your time and you executed 18 search warrants, submitted 37 items that were collected in the early days of the case for DNA testing recovered 140 new items of evidence, and conducted 91 interviews. Yes. And so some people did get re-interviewed by us. The original people that I mentioned earlier that were at the party that found Kristen, that saw her at the party with Paul, um, I didn't re-interview for the reasons stated earlier. But... There were other people we found. The FBI, in 1999, the FBI sent questionnaires to every single Cal Poly student that was enrolled at Cal Poly in 1996, May of 1996. So there were thousands. There were probably four or five boxes of these questionnaires, and they were five or six pages in length. And I went through uh, myself and DA investigator JT Camp went through every single one of them. And we found lots of witnesses that were deemed not to be important that we felt were important, including a guy who testified who saw Paul Flores in the doorway of Kristen's dorm room prior to the party. As well, one of Kristen's best friends who was never interviewed, who told us and testified that Paul was chasing Kristen at parties. Very creepy, like, um, and she had never been interviewed other than that questionnaire. And at the time, somebody felt it wasn't important. Well, it's important because Paul Flores adamantly denied he had never met Kristen Smart, didn't know who she was until the night of the party, didn't hang out with her at the party, didn't fall to the floor with her at the party, like, multiple witnesses said they saw. And so these new witnesses we located, both with Chris Lambert's help and through our investigation, were extremely helpful circumstantially to prove Paul's involvement in in the murder and what we believe was rape or attempted rape of Kristen Smart. We'll be right back with more of this story. Can you share for us then the events of that night as reconstructed by your team as presented at trial after which Paul Flores was found guilty of murdering Kristen Smart during the commission of an attempted or commissioned rape. Kristen Smart was out with a friend earlier in the evening at a party. That friend wanted to go back to the dorms. Kristen wanted to continue partying that night. So they parted ways around 10, 1030 in front of or near the Crandall Way house where this party was being thrown for someone's birthday party. 
wasn't a huge party, but it was open. You didn't have to necessarily be invited to party. You know, it's college on the call. It was right off the college camp. I mean, literally across the street from parts of the college campus. So pretty much anyone could go if they knew about the party. Kristen showed up about 10, 1030, completely sober. She had had one beer earlier in the evening. People saw her walk in because she's very pretty and, as I said, very tall. So she, without trying to, she kind of made a scene as she walked in, not necessarily in a bad way. It's just she was very noticeable. And uh, she wasn't drinking a whole lot to a lot of the witnesses. She was talking to a lot of different people. And as the night went on, people saw her being what they described as quote, loopy, and a lot of them didn't see her drinking alcohol very much. There was one uh, witness who actually kissed Kristen on the lips at the party, and he didn't smell alcohol, but yet she was showing the signs of some sort of extreme intoxication. Prior to this, she had been seen with Paul Flores at the bar in the house as well as in the living area of the house, living room area, with Paul's arm around Kristen. Paul denies all of this. They actually do, Paul and Kristen, make a scene by falling onto the house floor in the hallway where pretty much the whole party sees it. Paul denies that whole interaction with Kristen, says it never happened multiple witnesses who are much more believable than Paul saw this interaction and saw Paul on top of Kristen after they fell to the ground. Shortly after that, the party's starting to break up around 1 o'clock in the morning and multiple people see Kristen laying face down onto the grass and gravel just to the left of the Crandall Way party house extremely intoxicated to the point where uh, she's barely coherent. Some people asked her if they could help her. She told them no. She's eventually helped to her feet by one of the guys in charge of the party. And they start walking towards the campus to get her home. Paul comes out of the darkness of a corner of the house and says, I know where she lives. I'll take her home. So Paul, Kristen, and another female who was sober start walking. Well, what's interesting to me, how does Paul know where she lives? When he told investigators in 1996 that he didn't know her. So you put that with the witnesses that were located showing that he did know her. He was interested in her romantically at parties and had been in her dorm room, you know, that's pretty, pretty darn suspicious behavior. And one witness described him as hiding in the dark on the side of the house of the party as if he was waiting for her. And unfortunately that didn't come to light until our part of the investigation Um, But the witness was very believable and very adamant that Paul came out of nowhere to walk her home. Um, And so the three of them take off. 
on the walk up to the dorm, which is a short walk, but it was partially uphill. Kristen's hanging on Paul because she's so intoxicated she can't walk on her own. Paul's got his arm around her to support her. In the meantime, the other female student who's walking with them, Paul tries to kiss and hug, and she says no on the way up. When they get to the top by the dorms, the female student goes towards her dorm, which is the opposite direction of Paul and Kristen's dorms. Paul and Kristen's dorms were a couple hundred yards in proximity to each other, where this other student's was probably half a mile down the road, the opposite direction. And that was the last time at that location on Grand and Perimeter on the Cal Poly campus that anyone saw Kristen Smart alive and she was in the arms of Paul Flores. And can you share then from that point, you know, there has been public acknowledgement of the way the case was handled initially and in no way to impugn the service or dedication of those in law enforcement, but there is, has been an acknowledgement that much of the case was mishandled to the point of evidence becoming ephemeral. So Paul's dorm room was cleaned professionally, for example, before anyone ever searched it. Um, And there were sort of, there have been allegations that that space in time, a hesitation or a lack of of follow-through initially was why it was so difficult to collect the evidence that sort of to your point made earlier seemed seemed quote unquote obvious, of course, keeping your mind open. Um, so can you share within law enforcement, as there was always an active duty detective put on it from 2011, what was the, what was the general consensus amongst law enforcement at that time? How hard was it to be frank when you inherited the case and you're, you're um, the other detective who had it from 2011? How hard was it to pick up the pieces or to put together a puzzle from the broken pieces of what had been accomplished or not accomplished in 1996? It was an extremely difficult case. When I inherited the case, we didn't have a body. We didn't have a crime scene. uh, No confession, no DNA, uh, no eyewitnesses. It was 26 years old. No photographs um, other than of Paul's dorm room, which were taken during the search you mentioned about a month afterwards, after it had been cleaned. Um, And it was a very public case with everybody who was interested in the case having a theory. Other than that, uh, we had a lot going for us. (laughs) So it was a difficult case. The initial investigators noticed Paul's black eye when they first interviewed him on the 29th of May, 1996. Uh, They mention it, but they don't take a picture. Uh, They don't take pictures of Paul's scratches on his hands, his knees. They begin the interview by saying this is not a suspect interview, even if it's not probably not the best way to start an interview in a case like this, because it puts the individual at ease. And at the time, it's easy to look back 25, 26 years later 
and say this is obviously foul play for whatever reason in the in the mid 90s things were looked at differently than they are now when somebody went missing i worked on lots of unsolved cases and older unsolved cases um, before i retired and people law enforcement in general treated missing persons a lot differently back then than they do now. There's been a lot of law changes due to that. And Paul was a suspect in their mind when looking back, obviously I felt he was. So that first interview didn't gain a whole lot other than acknowledge the bruise and scratches. Then they interviewed him the next day and not a lot was gained from that. And then later on, um, about, well, it was on June 19th, the district attorney's office interviewed him. And that was a videotaped interview where, in my opinion, it's blatantly obvious that Paul Flores is involved and has knowledge of what happened to Kristen Smart. There was, when they did the search of Paul's dorm in, I believe it was July 29th, June 29th of 1996, they did take the mattresses, corners of Paul's mattresses from his dorm room because four separate cadaver dogs had alerted to that corner of the mattress. Well, actually three to the corner of the mattress. The mattress was removed. The fourth dog alerted to that area of the bed frame as well as a trash can in Paul's room. Those dogs are only trained to alert to human remains. They don't alert to meat, throw up, stuff like that. And so luckily those mattresses were taken as evidence, the corners, they cut the corners off. They were analyzed multiple times. I had them redone when I had the case by a private lab And they couldn't rule either out or in that some of the DNA was Kristen Smart. It was inconclusive. So that was what was testified to. However, there was information that was not allowed in court that there were very unique DNA markers consistent with Kristen's that were located on the mattress, but it's nothing that can be testified to or used in court. It's just, it, there's not enough information. And so it was inconclusive. But, you know, obviously the defense looks at that as a bonus for them. I looked at it as a bonus for us. They can't rule her out. They can't say it's not her. As an aside, you know, knowing that when when motions are granted, for example, defense motions are granted and there's a piece of evidence or a testimony that is not allowed at trial, how hard is that for you? Does it sort of generally then result in a 110% you know, goal on your part of collection because you know you're going to lose 20% or 10% as always? I, I Having the less than the full story of course, it's in the interests of procedural justice, and that's crucial for the credibility of our system. But it must be, I would think, difficult as an investigator and detective to know something that is it's important extremely, isn't there. Yeah. 
Yes, it's extremely frustrating and difficult. Um, there were other very important things that proved Paul's guilt that were not allowed in court due to legal reasons. Could you share some of them here? Um, during his interview, he, he does some actions that, in my opinion, 100% sh- show his involvement, but he had asked to leave prior to that and was told no. And brings up a very difficult legal issue to overcome to use that information. But it's very compelling evidence that was never allowed in court. And, uh, and it shouldn't have been based on the law. <laughs> and to be clear for listeners, are you talking about Mirandizing him? That essentially when the interview ceased to be voluntary, then he should have been Mirandized, which means read his rights and, and communicated that he has the right to counsel. And so you're saying that cutoff was breached without properly Mirandizing him. Is that what I'm hearing? And so yes. therefore the rest of the interview was inadmissible because it was quote unquote, not proper and therefore inadmissible. Is that correct? Yes, very good term. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at that point, due to improper actions, yes, we could not, nobody could use that information from that point forward as the interview went on. And there was some good information pointing towards Paul's guilt, but that's the cards, you know, that were dealt. It is what it is. It's, it's, it's easy to, I shouldn't say it's easy, but it can happen. Uh, where an investigator in an inter- a serious interview can can get tunnel vision and, you know, uh, a mistake was made. Mm-hmm. And we can't focus on that 25 years later. We have to focus on what can we do to get past that. Um, there was still plenty of good circumstantial points, evidence, not so much evidence, but actions, reactions in Paul's interview that point to his skill. It's blatantly obvious, even to an untrained person. I, I would think that that interview blatantly shows Paul's hiding something. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. So on October 18th, as we said, Paul Flores was found guilty of murder. His father was found not guilty of helping to hide her body in layman's terms. Um, what did that conviction mean to you? And do you hold out hope that her body will in fact be located? And will the rest of the family, the help that it's my understanding you think Paul had, that there will be accountability for those people at some point in the future? In, in regards to accountability for the rest of the family probably not going to be held accountable. We know Ruben can't be because he was found not guilty. Um, and, and, you know, that's our system. You respect the opinion of the jury, even though I strongly disagree with it. Um, while we were swabbing Ruben for his DNA, he admitted to committing a felony. It was recorded. It was played before the jury. They felt overall that there wasn't enough evidence 
to convict him. And we have to respect that opinion, but I disagree with it. And I feel very strongly, I mean, we believe she was under his deck. That's a lot of involvement. What? How did his defense explain his caught on video admission then? How did they explain away so the jury discarded it or felt it wasn't relevant? How was that explained then? They said that he was nervous, even though I had called his attorney ahead of time, Got because he had an attorney. So I got permission to go there. He had several hours of knowing that we were coming. So they kind of said that he was caught off guard, nervous. Uh, it was a slip of the tongue that that's not what he meant. It was it was one of the many frustrating events in this case. But once again, that's how our system's built. And we have to respect have to respect that. Don't agree with it, but I respect it. Um, I don't think that there's always hope that eventually they will bring her home to her family. I, I just, based on what I know about them, the family, Paul, you know, I'm not sure that it'll ever happen, but I would always hope that, that it does happen. And I think at this point being held accountable is not near as important as us just holding them accountable is not near as important as bringing Kristen home to her family. Yeah. And how, what did that conviction mean to you of Paul? <sighs> I am, I'm at better peace with it now than I was early on. Um, I was extremely happy, excited for the family the smarts, their friends, uh, all of their family. Uh, they had huge support. And so I was elated that we were able to convict the guy that I believe did this. But there'll always be a part of me that um, wishes we would have brought her home. And that aided me a lot early on after the conviction. But I'm better with it now. And I'm very happy very excited for the family that Paul's where he needs to be. Cause there's a whole lot about Paul other needing to be in prison other than Kristen Smart's case. And uh, I have the misfortune of knowing all of that. And uh, Paul is where he needs to be. And it's a blessing that Paul Flores hopefully never gets out of prison again. And specifically, you know, he was sentenced to uh, 25 years to life in prison, which was the maximum allowed. And in August of 2023, he was stabbed in the neck by another inmate, an attempt at murder, which he was then rendered in serious condition. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I was retired, so I don't know a whole lot about the intimate details. I, I know some because obviously I'm still, you know, in touch with JT camp from the DA's office and investigator Greg Smith, who took my position and continues to work on the case is uh, in regards to bringing Kristen home. And uh, I think it's obvious what I feel. And I say that because I don't think Paul will ever do the right thing. And that's, 
the sadness that goes along with being involved in this case. I know, I know the Flores family pretty darn well, and I just don't think they'll ever cooperate and do the right thing. And so prison's not fun for bad people. I'll leave it at that. The same inmate who stabbed Paul Flores was the one who killed the I-5 strangler. And I hear what you're saying, because my thought, too, was, well, the only the only good that I mean, I'm, you know, I'm saying this as a non-participant in the legal system in this moment, in this case, that, well, the only the only good about him still being alive is maybe he will give information. Maybe he will finally tell someone where Kristen Smart's body is or finally admit to other people's involvement so the family can get more closure. But to your point, if he's never, they're never going to do the right thing, that's probably a one in a infinitesimal chance. Yeah. You know, I I hope they do. Um, I, you know, I think everyone involved in this case, whether you're just someone who followed it, someone who's doing a podcast or, or those of us, you know, a family member or those of us that were, you know, involved in it in the investigation, I think we all hold out hope, but as of now, there's, there's been no movement on that. Detective Cole, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your dedication to this case and for procuring justice for the Smart family and for so many people who care about this case. And we wish you all the best. And we truly hope that Kristen's body is brought home at some point, at some point soon. So thank you again for all of that. And thank you for joining us today with this tragic story that ends, thankfully, with justice being served. Uh, Thank you very much, Emily. And yes, on justice being served. Appreciate that. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.